So I recognize that young people are not young people, they're movement age. There was nothing more healing. It was joy. What Dr. King says is the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I heard you say, but we must bend it. If you take the time to engage the folks that are directly impacted by your policies, you'll not only address root causes, but be able to do so with much more intention. This is the Young People Lead Podcast. Let's activate our generation. Welcome to season one of the Young People Lead Podcast Series. This exciting new series is hosted by youth policy consultants from the American Youth Policy Forum, powered by Children's Defense Fund. This is the podcast that demonstrates young people can and should lead by telling stories from the front line where young people are transforming policies for the better, as well as examining research on the policies that most affect us. This season, we're standing on policy. That's right, season one is dedicated to standing on policy, activating our generation. Throughout this season, six of us youth policy consultants will take you, our listeners, on a journey to understand how young people are making a difference in the policies that affect us most. We'll talk to experts, researchers, and youth leaders working on policies in education, the legal system, child welfare, and the workforce. If you are a young person looking to catalyze change, this podcast is for you. We'll also invite researchers and leaders in youth-focused organizations across the country to listen in, because we are sure you'll want to hear what our guests and passionate young adult policy consultants have to say. This series is a sister series to the Credible Messenger podcast, released in 2022 to 2023 by AYPF and available wherever you get your podcasts. If you love the Credible Messenger podcast, if you care about the well-being of all young people and or are excited about seeing young people leading the way to a brighter future, stay tuned in. You're going to love this series. Welcome, everyone, to episode one of Standing on Policy. We are so, so excited to be here with you. My name is Kyla Woods. And I am Trail Williams. Before we jump in, we'll tell you a little bit about ourselves. I'm based in Washington, D.C. I've been organizing for about six years now. And I'm so excited to continue exploring how we can act as bridges to spaces of power and our community. Trail, tell us a little bit about you. Yes, I'm Trail Williams. I've been organizing for about six years now as well. We're going to talk about this moment in time that we're all experiencing together as a people and what it means for us as young advocacy groups to make our organizations look like they should for this moment to empower our generation to respond to this time. And we're going to really focus on the intergenerational aspect of this movement. Yes, yes. How are we passing the baton as we demand that the older generation do the same? You know, we are in our 20s. I know I'm 26. Um, how are we making sure that we're making way for 16, 18-year-olds to stand on our shoulders and take the movement forward? So I'm so grateful uh, to dive into this discussion with you, Tro. Yes, and I'm excited to be here with you as well, Kyle. I'm 24, so I'm very interested in having this conversation about how the baton is passed, but also how we take it. 
My co-hosts Trill and I are youth policy consultants with the Children's Defense Fund. And today we are speaking with two guests from CDF, President and CEO, Reverend Dr. Starksky Wilson and Executive Assistant Channing Hill. For 50 years, CDF has worked at the intersection of well-being and racial justice for children and youth. The work rooted in civil rights and women's movements is carrying the fight for equity forward using a multidisciplinary approach that includes research on child well-being that centers the voices of youth and their families and building a movement for young people, which Trill and I are a part of. CDF's 2023 State of America's Children Report underpins the need for this movement we are building together. Produced annually, the report provides data on child population, child poverty, income and wealth inequity, housing and homelessness, child hunger and nutrition, child health, early childhood, education, child welfare, youth justice, and gun violence. One key finding from last year's report, which I think is relevant to today's conversation, is that 2023 was the second consecutive year in which children of color constituted the majority of all children in the United States. At 50.6%, underscoring the need for CDF's unique approach that focuses on the specific needs of Black and Brown children as essential. We encourage listeners to read the full report on CDF's website. Drew, can you explain a little bit about what youth policy consultants are and what we do? Of course, Kyla. As YPCs or youth policy consultants, we work with the American Youth Policy Forum powered by Children's Defense Fund, leveraging our lived experience and expertise to provide perspective on the root causes of issues that most impact children and young people. Most recently, we meet regularly with American Institutes for Research staff to discuss education equity, hurdles to employment, much needed policy reforms and other pressing issues that impact youth. This has been the foundation of what allowed us to develop this podcast that we hope you all enjoy. Here are a few things we'll mention on this episode and others that will be helpful to know about. One, CDF is the acronym we use for Children's Defense Fund. Two, YPC is the acronym we use for Youth Policy Consultant. Three, AYPF is the acronym we use for the American Youth Policy Forum. We'll also talk with Dr. Wilson and Channing about some of the programs that CDF has that we have been honored to experience, including the Black Student Leadership Network, the Alex Haley Farm, and the Ella Baker Training Center. Okay, Kyla, why don't we go ahead and get into it? Let's do it. All right, everyone, we are going to jump into the episode. Today, we have a very special conversation with two exciting guests, Reverend Dr. Starsky Wilson, president of Children's Defense Fund and former minister of St. John's Church in St. Louis. St. John's Church was at the forefront of peaceful protests that followed the killing of Michael Brown. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Wilson. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. Alongside Dr. Wilson, we'll be speaking with Channing Hill a community organizer who, while studying at Howard University, led the Blackburn Takeover, the occupation protest at Howard University that lasted 34 days, the longest student protest in Howard's history. Welcome, Channing. Thank you. Of course, of course. We're so excited to have the both of you. I know we are going to learn so much, so I just want to hop right in. Uh, First, I'll start with Dr. Wilson. As a movement leader who is now 
steering CDF. We're so interested in learning what your trajectory has been. Can you tell us a little bit about that progress concerning youth and young adult engagement in policy? Sure. No, I appreciate the question. I've always seen young people engage in the work. I went to a high school in Dallas that was focused on law, law enforcement, public service, and public engagement. So from that time, really been interested in what social change looks like, but more convinced in that moment that young people were a part of it. Just kind of planted a seed that I always understood that I could be engaged in social change. I could actually make a difference in the community um, through kind of political, uh, electoral, and community engagement organizing. And so that became a part of what I came to study uh, at Xavier University uh, as a political science uh, major, theology minor, uh, as uh, someone who was interested in public service and learning in that way. And it began to continue to come through as I shifted to respond to issues in my own life uh, and see that lived out, um, not just in the context of you know the Ferguson uprising, but definitely radicalized and renewed with the engagement of uh, young leaders in that movement. So we continue to kind of grow in this way um, and uh, try to uh, create space now uh, for the engagement uh, and the impact of uh, younger leaders in the work. Wow, thank you. Do you feel like those experiences shaped your ideology towards youth partnership? Frankly, more than anything else, uh, what shaped and transformed uh, my uh, perspective around partnership uh, with young people and movement work uh, is the radicalization of the Ferguson Uprising. I studied Black history. I am of a community that taught me that history and lived it out. So I recognize that young people are not young people, they're movement age. Like I've said that for a long time, uh, from the traditions of the Children's Crusades to Hector Peterson in uh, movements in South Africa, to the expressions that we continue to experience, frankly, from Tiananmen Square to movements of the dream. Like young people actually drive movement in every sphere that we've ever come to understand. Um, so I come from that understanding and heritage, especially in the context of the Black community. But it was deeply radicalized in a new way in my late 30s uh, when young people in the streets of St. Louis and Ferguson began to hold out and hold space in a manner that the, the country had not seen since the Montgomery bus boycott. And so there, in deep and intimate relationship. Uh, with young leaders, uh, with the call, the push and the pull uh, of supporting their leadership, creating space in other ways, translating in some ways, uh, but also um, the mutuality and reciprocity of mentorship across generations uh, have been deeply informed by the power of young people and my responsibility to younger people uh, in this work. So ways that we can do this work together transgenerationally and uh, learn from, grow and build with one another. So all of that informs how I'm trying to do the work at CDF as well. That's that's so beautiful. And, and without the reciprocity that you just mentioned, right, you would think that this is the first time young people are being called to the forefront or feel um, impassioned to do so. Um, and so that that stewardship of knowledge is so important. Thank you, Dr. Wilson. Channing, your experience um, as a member of Gen Z, can you just tell us a little bit about your trajectory as a youth advocate um, and then a lead organizer? I grew up in... <laughs> predominantly white area of the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. And I felt the experience of being othered. When you grow up experiencing being left out or being told that you're the loudest or being made the problem, when it's very clear that you, you're just Black, you did nothing wrong, you know? 
it becomes survival to take up social justice and social action because you're left with no choice. What led me to social justice and social action is a determination to survive in these environments and not be erased, but also a determination that we weren't all discounted and it wasn't going to take one of us. All of us mattered. Wow. Wow. And I feel like a lot of times it's that frustration, that that otherness that brings us to this space. But what sustains you? What motivates you? to be the powerhouse you are. You do. What sustains me and what motivates me is family, um, chosen family, community. What sustains me and what motivates me is hope and dreams. Um, what sustains me and motivates me in this work is the history. Youth in the movement is not new. I'm constantly thinking about the Children's Crusade and filling up the Birmingham jails with hundreds of children. And when I think about that and when I thought about that as a youth, I don't think my mama back in the day, whether King was telling me or not, um, would have let me walk into a Birmingham jail. But I think what you saw then and what you saw now is not just a responsibility, but an opportunity. And what I imagine sustained those students who walked out of their classrooms into um, a, a Birmingham jail was hope. Like 400 years of work went into this. 400 years of youth work goes into this. It's, it's, a, it's a birthright. Wow. And it's it's beautiful. You can hear some of the mentorship even from, from Dr. Wilson. What I heard you saying earlier was st making sure that we're standing on the shoulders of those that came before us while we're pushing others up. This space, if anything, can feel draining, but there's so much hope to pull from it. Dr. Wilson, I want to pivot a little bit to what Channing was just talking about, right? That organizing. How do you leverage organizing in the context of policymaking? It's important for people, uh, as we consider the history uh, of some of these movements, I'm very intentional to use that S. So unfortunately, often we, we talk about the policy that comes out of these movements, uh, number one, as the only aim, uh, or number two, we talk about policy as something that happened based upon advocacy and research as if there wasn't a wider context. So it's important for us to name that uh, community organizing has several results um, uh, and its different tactics produce different outcomes. Number one, uh, connecting people so that they don't understand themselves to be alone in the moment, even in as much as they understand themselves to be in a trajectory of histories of oppression and challenges uh, as they consider history and even think into the future through the eyes of their children. Number two, it helps to educate people not, on, not only uh, on their circumstances, but on the systems that created those circumstances. And then number three, in community organizing, we can plant seeds or we can craft together solutions that can be codified into statutes, um, ordinances, and laws that are the policy that create a pathway forward for the removal of our challenge. So community organizing is increasingly the place through participatory budgeting, participatory processes, and public and political education, where we craft public policy. It does not all have to come from a research one institution. 
policy starts with a problem around the table of big mamas, mamas and abuelitas trying to take care of their children every single day. Community organizing can craft and create the space for policy to come forth. It is one of the things we learned most clearly in the context of the Ferguson uprising. We organized 3,000 citizens over the course of a year and a half to come to public meetings to determine through a community organizing project what would be 189 policy recommendations that we need and we would identify accountable bodies to say these are the people who need to make these laws possible. And the community came up with them. Community organizing is a locus of policymaking. We're really excited that we have now a negotiated agreement to pass a child tax credit here in Washington, D.C. That is not all the things we wanted or had in the 2021 bill in the context of the American Rescue Plan. It's not going to lift half of Black children out of of poverty like that one did. But we understand that it's going to help up to 16 million children in America live better lives. And it is critical that that policy happens. Let's be clear, though. We had a public level demonstration that it worked from two years ago. And that rational case and all that data and demonstration and all that validation from the research did not make it possible for us to keep that intervention in policy that we already had. It took public pressure. It took phone calls. It took emails. It took making sure our coalitions were moving with elected officials and pushing even some of our partners to go further than they wanted to go in order to get that child tax credit uh, negotiated in this year's tax bill. So not only can community organizing create the receptacle or container in community to produce policy, but community organizing creates the pressure uh, in a context so public officials understand that they need to pass certain public policy. And so uh, I'm glad that we're able to kind of work at both ends uh, at CDF, that we can't just go through uh, the halls of Congress. Sometimes we got to go into community and make the people who come forth from those halls accountable for the things that they do there. And organizing gives us a tool for that. A million finger snaps to that. I mean, now, like you said, we're seeing it with participatory youth research. We're seeing uh, the big kind of think tanks go into communities, but it it almost had to be cemented uh, by organizers who have been doing that in non-traditional spaces, like you said. Channing, I want to bring you into the conversation a little bit for how should we bring our peers into the movement? Uh, Equitably, uh, paid, Tell me about Um, when you can, of course, Uh, there was this one time I was protesting and working in my school district. Uh, There were a number of policies that were disproportionately affecting black kids. And I went to a school board meeting. We had organized a bunch of parents, a bunch of students across the junior highs and the high schools. And we go to the school board meeting and we we came prepared. We presented them with cases of students who felt disenfranchised. We said there were specific policies that that disproportionately affected black and brown students. Of course, you know, once you've raised the issue, they ask you then to fix it yourself. And I was 18. I was a very intimidating ask, but it is also one of the ways that you can alienate youth. Oftentimes, as black and brown youth, we're expected to show up and tell stories about, you know, our our traumatic experiences or what it's like, you know, being othered or coming from an experience that you had to overcome. 
like there is a a way through like participatory action research to engage with youth um, as credible messengers, as people who are experts in their own experiences. That that you is just the moral way to go about it. You want to make sure that in these intergenerational spaces that when we bring youth to the table, we're bringing them to the table and it's a safe table. Exactly. That we've prepared. We've set the table. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Dr. Wilson, when we think about centering young people, what do we achieve? What do we get in in return? Yeah, first and foremost, you get the... um the value of uh, an affirmed humanity that you're doing what's right. Uh, One of the things I say is that Mm -hmm. uh, the moral authority to define the future belongs with those who are living it the longest. Average policy campaign, even if it's successful, is going to be five to seven years. Uh, So we're running policy campaigns right now that will impact my eight-year-old daughter when we're talking about high schools. We're running policy campaigns right now for for college students who have not yet begun their families. We're running campaigns around maternal health for when they begin their families. And so you get to get the policy right for the people that's going to impact the most when you center the voices of young people, whether you're talking about youth, young adults, or children's policy or not, because it takes so long to implement policy and then get the benefits. You're really talking about a trajectory of seven to 10 years. So number one, you get to actually have a real conversation with the real people that it's really going to impact. So that's number one. Number two, while I believe there's a great value in youth, uh, it is not a panacea for all things. Uh, It is not a placeholder for all things. You don't center youth when you're talking about elderly policy, right? Uh, So one of the things we we need to be mindful of is we need to center the voices of young people and things that that impact them in their lives uh, or things that are built in the interest uh, of um, assuaging concerns or advancing flourishing related to them, Uh, which is to say, in any other place you go to the source, so why not come to the source here? Right. We don't come to source here because uh, we have an actual hierarchy of human value. We actually believe young bodies are worth less because they don't have the same predictive capacity in capitalism. Um, And so we just got we got to get beyond our stuff in that. And it's a logic that we use in other settings. We just don't use it when we want to engage in the kind of marginality that has become so common in the West and in the U.S. Right. Um, So I think what we get is we get a true conversation. We get to access to more honest and earnest humanity in and of ourselves. And we get better policy because we ask the people who are impacted by it. Thank you so much, because a lot of times when people think about what it takes to actually get young people to the table, the first thought is, oh, my gosh, what am I going to have to move around in my life, my priorities, forgetting to understand the power of the outcomes young people provide? Uh, Like Dr. Wilson said, If you take the time to engage the folks that are directly impacted by your policies, you'll not only address root causes, but be able to do so with much more intention. Yeah. And I'll just say, like, if if it's too hard for you to have a meeting uh, of young people to get your policy done, uh, then part of what you ought to question is that whether that's really what you want to do. Right. Your meetings will probably start in the wrong place if it didn't start where the young people were. And frankly, to add on to that, I think there's this huge misconception that it's a some type of undertaking to include young people in organizing or these movements because young people are in class, so the meeting has to be later. But as organizing with adults, everybody has something. 
adults have full-time jobs. I think it is a misconception that it takes a certain extra amount of energy to organize young people. Thank you both. I'm going to turn it over to Trell for our next question. Thank you so much for bringing me and Kyla. This is a, an amazing conversation. And I just want to uh, say thank you, Dr. Wilson, for being here. You're one of the few people I've met in my life who has a true commitment and passion for youth being involved in the conversation and, and helping us go where we need to go. So thank you so much for yeah. playing such a big role in my perspective. No, thanks, man. Appreciate you. Yes. And Chan, for all the viewers out there, Chan and I are actually really great friends. And I'm excited to be here in conversation with you. She is committed to this work in a very rigorous way. Hey, bestie. Hey, so I'm going to shift the conversation a little bit. And it's going to be in the uh, context of a quote um, by Dr. King that I heard you spin on a little bit, Dr. Wilson. What Dr. King says is the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. And I heard you say, but we must bend it. And I want you to open that up a little. But through the context of some of our youth-powered segments of our organization, like the Black Student Leadership Network, what is their responsibility to grow into the organization, help it bend the arc of the universe towards justice? Yeah, and no, I appreciate the question. One of the things that King talked about as well in a speech called The Other America, he wrestled with people's objection to the advance of the movement. He was hearing it popularly uh, in 1967 after he made the Beyond Vietnam speech. Uh, and frankly, he had been hearing it earlier in the life of the Black church that suggested to him that he was moving too fast among a group of what they call young Turks inside the National Baptist Convention, that they were seeking to progress too quickly on social issues and civil rights. He was dealing with people who objected uh, to moving so quickly because they argued for the inevitability of time that time would indeed give us the opportunity to learn and grow together. Uh, and he made the argument that time is neutral. Time can either stand with the oppressor or time can advance progress, but it's about how we engage it, right? So here is where he begins to talk about the moral arc of the universe being long. And he begins to suggest that we have work to do. And so I, I kind of stand in the, in the line of that conversation to suggest that time is neutral and we have some work to do to shift the circumstances and conditions in our current context in order to make things better. Things don't just get better. Indeed, we find ourselves in the midst of a time where things could be getting worse. And so progress is not inevitable. And one of the ways we think we can uh, do better is to make sure that we're educating folks at every level and at every turn in the realities of our history, which includes a movement of progress. And usually when it comes to racial justice, a period of white backlash. King writes about this in his last book, Where Do We Go From Here?, that people were all about treating African-Americans decently, but not equally. And so we began to see a backlash and we find ourselves in a similar moment in public rhetoric. And so I think part of it is we can educate ourselves on the past, getting a sense of where these challenges and regressions may come from and prepare to build the power of solidarity in this moment uh, so that we have that to work with in the future. What, what do I mean? In the Black Student Leadership Network at Children's Defense Fund, part of what we're trying to do is train young 
young people to organize. And in many cases, young people who never believed they had to organize before. Train young people with a political perspective and an approach to understanding social change. That is service, yes, but more than service when necessary. That is policy, yes, but that is power building and wielding because we will have to. And we're doing that uh, even more challengingly in a circumstance where people don't see the immediacy of repression uh, in their very lives. The Black Student Leadership Network is an opportunity to connect young people across course, to connect them with history and with organizing so that we have the masses of young people to be able to be turned out. Uh, earlier, Channing talked about the the, the Children's Crusade uh, in, uh, in in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, people like to talk about that moment, um, especially Black History Month, you know, we're at that time. What people miss in that is that Fred Shuttlesworth had been on the ground sending young people to Highlander Center for years so that they were prepared for a moment of mobilization like that. So part of what we're trying to do in what some would call peacetime is organize people uh, for the time when they need to turn out in mass uh, in demonstration, a turnout in mass and boycott, turnout in mass in a political response to systems of oppression and repression um, when it feels more like war. So that's what we're doing with the BSLM. We want young people to understand the realities of history. We want them to understand the power of community organizing. We want them to have solidarity with uh, one another and be able to make these connections when the time comes. Dr. Wilson, I love that answer. Thank you so much for that. I also love how you center your answer around time, especially as I consider the unique time that we're in. I would just gently push back on those who consider this peace time, when in just over 100 days, we've seen over 28,000 Palestinians murdered, as well as 60% of their housing destroyed. So my question for you and Channing is, Yes, within the context of education, but also outside of it, what are our unique responsibilities as people living through this time? I think the first call is a call to prepare. And so I think political education is critical because, frankly, the situation in Gaza and the challenge uh, of repression of Palestinians in that place, that is historic and over time that we have had some responsibility to uh, and the acute event of October 7th. Um, and so I don't jump too far past education because I find a shallowness of understanding of issues and a lack of political ideological framing and grounding in most people that we come into contact with. So I just say, I don't, I don't think it's all that, but I'll start in that place because I don't want to jump too far beyond it. I also think we have a responsibility when I talk about solidarity to put people in conversations, connections, and containers so that they have a political home to move from. So they have something to do with their political leanings and with their human urgings for freedom. Part of what we have to do is actually put people in places where they can connect with the political home, whether that's that's the Black Student Leadership Network for some of our young people, whether that's the NAACP, uh, whether that's Jewish Voices for Peace, whether that's their local church. I think we got a responsibility to connect people so that they can get engaged in responsible action that is connected and where they are accountable uh, for the work as well, to use that example and any other example. So uh, whether you want to do it on economic issues, well, who are you rocking with on your economic issues, right? Do you have a position that is effectively informed by someone from the Center for the Study of Social Policy or the uh, Center on Budget and Policy Priorities? Or do you rock with a church where you're talking about an economy of jubilee uh, so that your church is rocking with Sojourners or the Sammy DeWitt Proctor Conference? I think we have a responsibility to connect people so that collective action is grounded, accountable, and can be sustained as well. 
I'll stop there and invite Channing to, to disagree with me at any level. You and know, she often does, just for the record. Like, this seems real nice, but sometimes we go. It, it, that's true. That's true. I don't really have a disagreement. I think that question of responsibility, I want to say this with the most humility, um, respecting the <laughs> the the movement elders in the room. <laughs> see, see, we I knew that was gonna come. Sooner or later, I'm gonna let you get to your point. I'm just but I'll be back. I have two things that we're responsible for because time is difficult. It's difficult to understand as a youth in the movement because these things feel fresh to us. It's some different type of exhausting to watch the same social circumstance that haunted and plagued your grandparents to your parents to your great-grandparents. And it's hard to combat something that while joy and freedom is also a birthright, sometimes it's hard and you have to teach yourself that oppression is not yours to claim. So one of the things that the Children's Defense Fund does that I think has caused a shift for me is to frame our work around joy. This is directly from Dr. Wilson. This is his mentorship. It is our responsibility to be stewards and advocates of joy. We are our ancestors' wildest dreams. Our joy is so determined and strong. It's awkward because as we're talking about deaths of children across the world and in internationally and domestically, it's frustrating because when you realize that you've grown up in an age of school shootings being such a hot topic, hearing another one is expected and not surprising, that, that's a different type of psychology for you. It is our responsibility as leaders in youth movements is to show our peers that there's joy in the struggle. There's joy in the freedom and the liberation on the other end. And our second responsibility is to love. And love is an actionary word. And love has always been an actionary word for us and our people. Love was an actionary word when Harriet Tubman freed hundreds of enslaved people. Love was an actionary word when Nat Turner sought to free his family. And love is an actionary word when you saw kids, children being loving of their community and being loving of their parents and being loving of their grandparents and being loving of of us for those of us that have really committed our lives and our youth to social justice and social change there's often a quickness to feeling almost betrayed when like your family or your friends don't want to come to the protest with you you know in those moments that's when it's important to talk about the largest of joys the biggest of joys and the 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 actionary responsibility of love can I push it? Go ahead. My wife wouldn't believe that I loved her if I never sacrificed for her. And so services, it is appropriate. It is called for. And when we're talking about upending evil systems, it is insufficient. And so people need to appreciate that sacrifice in the context of movement is required. And there are fresh jail cells waiting on us. And until we have made the sacrifice of our time and paid a consequence to our upward mobility, this is where I'll be a relic uh, in this context. 
You are not going to be able to stay popular, gain followers, never deal with a challenge, never have a reputational risk, never go to jail and free anybody in a country or in a context that is this committed to capitalism and white supremacy. So let us be clear, friends, there was work and sacrifice waiting for you. Now, determining when you engage in that appropriate sacrifice, how much it is to cost you, that is part of your responsible discernment. But love calls for sacrifice. So that's one. The other, I, I want to lift up like the systematic undermining of, of the system of, and the network that was the Black Lives Matter chapter global network and is the movement for Black Lives. One of the great challenges that happened as people sought to dismantle the power of that movement was the loss of something called the Black Joy Celebration. Within the context of the organizing in Ferguson and that uprising and across the country and BLM chapters, there came to be something that was a spiritual, even a worshipful experience of Black joy. Uh, it had its own liturgy that was informed by creative expression and in some ways from the church as well. And, and in a few places, they still engage in this. But what it is, is an act of joy as resistance. And so what, what Channing was talking about, this joy that we seek on the other side of justice, where we honor that joy and justice are intimately intertwined, this joy that we experience in the midst of the struggle and the battle is not just because we are battling, but rather there are spaces, there are glimpses within which we carve out space in the face of oppression and we act up in joy. We act up spiritually. We get renewed in our souls by having in, having interaction with one another. I remember uh, in the context of the uprising in Ferguson, matter of fact, on the weekend of Ferguson, October, where thousands of people came from all over the country and Cornell West came in, he came to give a speech. Some people decided they wanted to give a rally and a young student, actually a nine-year-old who is now a senior at Howard University, took the stage. She was nine years old at the time, took the stage, took the mic because all these grown folks from all these civil rights, uh, uh, all these civil rights groups were talking too much. Cornell West, after she took the stage, her name is Tandiwe Abdullah. After she took the stage, Cornell came up and said, look, I didn't come here to give a speech. I just came to get arrested. And so then we, we filed out of this university arena, began to walk all through, circumambulating through the streets of St. Louis. And at different points, we would come to the middle of an intersection and we would hold up the intersection with the, the masses of people in the midst of the intersection. We would start hula hooping. In the midst of the intersection, we pull out jump rope. In the midst of the intersection, we would start dancing because that expression of Black joy was resistant. And it is very similar. I'm sorry, I'm a preacher. It is very similar to and akin to when Jesus goes into the temple and turns over the tables. Because for that moment, for that moment, the system cannot take advantage of people because the tables have been overturned. For that moment, the system has to stop and see us have fun. For that moment, our joy as resistance is also spiritual renewal. And that's one of the things we got to unearth that was a gift of BLM, is the Black joy expression and seeing joy as resistance. Wow. Wow. Yes. No, yeah. And I feel like we all have those stories. There, there was nothing more healing. It was joy in the streets in Dallas when blocking up the bridges and that at every intersection and protest songs. Oh, 
protest songs slap. They're a great playlist. They hit that, I love my hair because it's black. And I danced. You sit up there in celebration and in resistance and you blocking traffic. But then everybody passing by when you see people in the cars who are supporting you and they honking and you and you wave. It's a parade. But all resistance is joyful to me. Seeing me, sharing me, whether it is my blackness, whether it is my queerness, you know, whether it is, you know, my education or my story. When you see me, I feel joyful. You both give me butterflies. Oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. Dr. Wilson, you said something so powerful one time in speaking about the Black Student Leadership Network, Freedom Schools, and, and really how they are the vehicle that should be leading organizations like CDF, right? What do you think are tangible ways to get to this transformation? Thanks for the opportunity to come back. So um, yeah. I am not an elder. One of my millennial mentors uh, suggested that I'm not old enough to be an elder and I'm not young enough to be one of us, she said. Uh, she said I'm a middler, so I, I, I carry that with me. Um, it has some responsibilities of, uh, of being more senior, but, um, but it calls with it a groundedness, uh, in those who come after. So, so one of the things that's required is a commitment to transitional and transformational leadership. Uh, and I think, um, this is uh, part of what we're trying to do at CDF, uh, and trying to model, we actually do need to have programs that help us to work across the continuum. We serve and begin with young people who are five years old in my freedom schools, uh, teaching those scholars that they can make a difference, uh, in their communities. And we are engaging college students from across the country, uh, in service to those young people from K-12. And we are seeking to very explicitly politicize and teach community organizing, uh, to folks in the Black Student Leadership Network uh, to support uh, folks who are giving voice to public policy um, through the youth policy consultants to engage uh, even folks who see themselves on a professional path, a commitment to vocation and discernment and community uh, through the HBCU fellowship that we implement with the NBA, the National Basketball Association Foundation. So all of these things come together to make sure that we're curating a continuum of uh, support and orientation to movement and community uh, among young people. So we wanna make sure that we have made uh, available to young people uh, leadership ladders and lattices so that that handoff gets to happen and that we are humble enough in our own leadership that we're just not doing it programmatically, but we're engaging it personally, making sure that we're proximal enough to be informed, uh, to be connected, you know, to be pushed is also part of what we've got to do in order to make that leadership happen. And then we got to be willing to limit ourselves. Like, I actually don't think you should be leading these institutions for 20 years. I'm going to be here long enough to serve a generation and impact those who I'm called to. And then I'll move on and do something else and hand the keys over to somebody else, hopefully, prayerfully, someone who's younger than me and closer to the work. And so it actually requires that kind of professional commitment of self-limiting and humility as well. Thank you, Dr. Wilson. Channing. Going into 2024 and beyond, what do you think priorities folks like us in Gen Z demanding power should have on the forefront? That's a great question. First and foremost is the responsibility to self and self-care, making sure that you are well enough to be well for somebody else. We all need to be prepared to have somebody to lean on us, but also so that we can lean on each other concisely, 
what we need to be prepared for in 2024 is we need to be prepared to be advocates of joy. Wow. That was so beautiful. So, so beautiful. The both of you sustain me. Trill, you sustain me. I, I am so glad that this series will allow us to explore what this impact looks like from child welfare, employment, so a, a range of issues we'll get to delve into. And so thank you again. I'm so grateful for your presence, your wisdom. I can't wait to learn more from you and from our other hosts. Thank y'all for having us. Yeah, no, thank you very much. Wow, Trill, that was such a rich conversation. I mean, every time I speak to Dr. Wilson or Channing, I'm left with my cup full, so I'm not surprised. But um, today I just, I'm, I'm walking out with this huge sense of freedom. Like I am not going to worry about how I'm perceived in doing what's right. I am not going to bear the the stress of, of being perfect because I think a lot of times it is inconvenient. We might get in a little trouble, but embracing it is is the beauty. What'd you think? No, I, I definitely agree. If I could leave a call to action with some of our peers and mentors and people on the call, it'd be to free your imagination, to open your imagination to a better world that we know for sure is possible. Beautifully said. Thank you for listening to this episode of Standing on Policy, Activating Our Generation. This first season in the Young People Lead podcast, led by youth policy consultants from the American Youth Policy Forum, powered by Children's Defense Fund. This is the podcast that demonstrates young people can and should lead by telling stories from the front line of youth changing policy, as well as examining the research on policies that most affect us. This is a sister series to the Credible Messenger podcast released in 2022 to 2023 by AYPF and available wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is funded by American Youth Policy Forum, powered by Children's Defense Fund, in collaboration with the American Institutes for Research. Season one of Young People Lead, Standing on Policy, Activating Our Generation, is hosted and directed by a group of youth policy consultants from AYPF, the American Youth Policy Forum, including Trail Williams, Kyla Woods, Tyra Beeman, Jordan Wilson, Daphne Sanchez. This episode was directed by me, Kyla Woods. We believe that young people can lead in the legal system, foster care, education, and workforce to ensure policies that encourage our success. This show is produced, edited, and mixed by Sarah Daggett of Daggett Consulting, LLC. Thank you for joining the first episode of Standing on Policy. Our next episode is going to explore education and you're not gonna wanna miss it. Tune in. This is the Young People Lead Podcast. Let's activate our generation.